This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. And I'm Keith Baker. And in this episode, we take a look at the Treaty of Thronehold and how it has shaped life on Corvair after the last war. Uh, so this is, this is kind of an interesting topic because it's not a very overt one. I don't think in, in Eberron lore, but it does have some significant meaning in the lore in terms of uh, how it shaped the world. Um, and I don't know of any actual readings per se, uh, like any articles or anything or, or sources so, on it, but. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because that's the thing is there's not a lot of specifics about the treaty. For example, we don't actually have the treaty written down anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have an absolute specific list of point by point. Uh, what's covered. On the other hand, the point is that it is the treaty that has defined the current status quo. Right. You can make the argument that the Rising from the Last War source book is about the, the treaty because the world that it describes, you know, many of these nations that are just sort of taken as being part of things only exist because of the Treaty of Thronehold. Right. Right. Yeah. Basically what we see in the campaign books, whether it's rising or the 345 book or Mm -hmm. the 4E campaign guide is the sort of state of what the treaty has created. created. Right. So, So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, some basic stats. Uh, it, it was on the 11th day of Aerith, uh, in 996. That's two years after the day of mourning that it was signed and two years prior to the start of the campaign. Um, so really when the campaign setting starts at 998, uh, it's only been two years since the signing. That's correct. And that is the big thing that is, is, you know, has been overlooked in, in some earlier source books. Rising tries to really call it out, but that is the thing. The day of mourning was four years ago. The treaty of thronehold was two years ago. So we are really only two years out from the absolute, uh, cessation of hostilities. Right. And it's not that long. Right. So even after the Day of Mourning, it's not like everybody stopped fighting. Right. The idea is that with the Day of Mourning, the major battlefield actions were scaled down because people were afraid that that they were going to trigger another one. But there was certainly border skirmishes, continued tension, uh, you know, and then it was only with the Treaty of Thronehold that it was officially no, we are standing down. And frankly, to me, even now, I still consider that the the borders are still, you know, pretty militarized. So, right, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense because I mean, they're people are still protecting their their nations and their borders and such. It's still basically the point that you know what's called out is that the uh, the treaty didn't resolve the situation. Right. You know, Galifar, the, the last war began, uh, over the, who would succeed to the throne of Galifar. And well, no one's on the throne of Galifar. <laughs> you right. know, uh, and the, the treaty essentially said, well, we're stopping fighting. So we need to settle on the terms of what we're actually doing going forward. Right. And not even just about, you know, who's sitting, who's supposed to be sitting on the throne. But throughout the hundred years, there's been all sorts of starts and stops where other issues have, you know, risen. There's, there's still a bridge that's destroyed that nobody's repairing. There's still a city that's being held by another nation, you know. Right. 
But I mean, an interesting point is when you come down to it, we look at the Treaty of Thronehold as having created new nations, as having mm-hmm. created the Murholds, uh, Dargoon, Valinar. You know, these were nations that did not exist before the war. Right. But the funny thing is that in a way, you could say it actually also created Thrain and Brayland and Carnath. Mm-hmm. That they were nations that existed before the war and in some degree, you know, in different forms, they existed before Galifar. Nonetheless, essentially the point of the last war was that the rulers of the five nations didn't, uh, you know, accept the authority of the other rulers. Right. You know, that basically – uh, Rowan was saying she should be the ruler of Galifar, which means all five nations are under her authority. Mm-hmm. So while the Treaty of Thronehold acknowledged places like Valinar, it also acknowledged Undare as a separate sovereign nation. Right. right. Uh, that, and again, that hadn't officially been acknowledged to that point. Right. They were all considered part of the kingdom of Galifar. And, and, and part of the same, you know, sovereign unit, so right. to speak. Essentially, all of them were saying to the rest of them, hey, you're on our land. Right. You know, you should uh, bow down and accept our authority here. And, and again, in, you know, for all practical purposes, the five nations were established, you know, understood to be independent nations throughout the war. But technically, you know, anyone fighting the war was arguing, well, those people are rebels who ought to stand down and accept our authority. Right. And so, uh, so again, the status quo as we have it, the map as we have it really is what defines, you know, the, the Treaty of Thronehold is what defines modern Corvair, uh, with the, um, added touch of, as you said, there are still things like the city of Thaliost, uh, has been called out as an important Ondarian city currently held by Thrain. We call out Thaliost in detail because it's a major city, uh, and such, but to me, that's one of many. You know, it's the biggest, but there are certainly villages, uh, along any of the borders that in all likelihoods changed hands during the war. Right. You know, right. Thalios is, is the, the most important, but in terms of just making up stories, if you want to make up a story about a, uh, you know, uh, Braylish village that used to be Siren, go right ahead. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's definitely room for, you know, in my Eberron in that case. I mean, throughout the war, the borders were constantly shifting. Yep. And, and and they were very, very malleable. I, I will um, say that while Forge of War is not, you know, is not a book that I worked on and I don't agree with everything in it, I do like the fact that it has maps throughout the war yes. of, with borders changing. Yeah. And, and that is the point of when the war began, part of the whole idea is that Galifar just roughly said, oh, we go from sea to sea. And when things broke down, you have the nation saying, well, Carnath says we control everything in the uh, northeast. Right. Uh, you know, but the point is you have regions like uh, Droam is a perfect example where technically Droam was part of Brayland, mm-hmm. but it's not like there were ever any actual Braylish settlers there. Right. They just on the map said, well, 
that's ours. We own that. Yeah. And, <laughs> we and put so, a flag there. <laughs> right. So part of the point, you know, likewise with the Murrholds, it's not that there was ever a strong human presence in the Murrholds. It's just that uh, Galifar had asserted his authority uh, and had the power to enforce it. And so they were considered part of Karnath. Karnath, right. Uh, but, you know, them splitting off wasn't suddenly like, oh, they had to drive out tons of, of humans. They just basically said, hey, we're going to stop paying our taxes now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you have cases like Valinar where it was, you know, once a part of Seer, but then well, Seer doesn't Valinar, exist. You know? you know, Valinar is an interesting issue of because that is the point where we're saying even Seer was uh, dramatically stretched out. Yes. That yeah. that part of the idea, you know, one of the things, you know, I've said before is is the, the concept that when Galifar established uh, the United Kingdom and, you know, named the provinces after his children, uh, that Sarah in particular, and most of them, he just incorporated the existing nobility into his structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sarah is where he actually said, well, I'm going to clean this area out and sort of start fresh. And you guys just go off and live over in the east. Right. And so to a certain degree, what's now Valinar was basically a bunch of sort of dispossessed Syrian nobles pushed out into a region that was very much in that category of, okay, the people there certainly weren't going to fight Galifar, but it was never like they really loved it or were super excited to be uh, part of it. Right. Right. And and that's the idea of why it was so relatively easy for Valinar, uh, for the Terranidal to take it over, is because they just basically booted out the, uh, you know, the ethnic Syrian nobility, and the the locals were just like, eh, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, uh, so with the form forming of these new nations. Uh, mm-hmm. We end up with 12 nations total. Yep. And of course, we have a little bit of the 13 minus one because of Seer. That is absolutely is correct. Kind of fun. Shocking coincidence. Shocking, right. I say. Oh my gosh. Uh, but, and, and what's interesting is with the Treaty of Thronehold and these 12 nations, um, there, there was the, the Galifar Code of Justice already in play. Mm-hmm. And what this did is it extended protections and such to the, to those citizens of those 12 nations, but also to, the dragon marked houses who, you know, who were not, they're not officially part of those nations. But the implication of that is really interesting in that we also know that the shadow marchers and the dromites are not officially part of those 12 nations. Right. So let's, let's call that out for a moment and just say, so the point is when you look at the map of Corvair, most of the nations there, you know, basically the idea is if you go back a hundred years, it's all Galifar. Uh, now, at the same time, you have regions like the Demon Wastes. And the point is, technically, Galifar would say, sure, we own that too. But it's not like anyone ever wanted to live there. Uh, but basically, look at that map. Once it was all Galifar, at the start of the war, it's basically saying, well, now it's five nations. You know, they just still sort of felt like uh, everything belongs to us. And as you go through, you have the locals just saying, really, actually, you're not Galifar anymore. Either we don't accept your authority, mm-hmm. which is essentially Zalargo, Lazar Principalities, and the Murrholds, uh, were all pre-existing nations mm-hmm. that just accepted Galifar. 
but basically, you know, and in some cases like the Moraholds, you know, paid tribute, you know, they were, they were sort of, uh, if you will, subject, you know, nations. Uh, but this was just them sort of officially saying, by the way, we're not part of your thing as compared to then Dargoon, the Eldine reaches and Valinar, which violently separated, right. uh, over the course of the war. Um, and, you know, Kabara essentially was established during the war. Nobody really cared about it beforehand. And likewise, the Talenta planes are in that sort of Murholds category of, well, they were always just there doing their own thing. No one was really there trying to claim them mm-hmm. for Galifar. Uh, they just hadn't been officially recognized. But basically, if you look at that map, the critical thing, anything that's not one of the five nations was officially recognized during the war with the exception of the Shadow Marches, Droam, and the Demon Wastes. Right. So, West Coast not represented. <laughs> nice. We're, we're, we need that as a slogan, in, as an Eberron thing. West Coast not represented. And like again, it. part of that, you know, why that happened is it should be noted that all of those regions are extremely inhospitable. Uh, that the five nations never had a strong stake in any of those areas. You know, that the shadow marches became more relevant when House the Rashk appeared, but it's still not like there were any actual Braylish lords there. Right. right. Uh, and to a large degree, uh, you know, the shadow marches just doesn't have infrastructure of a nation. Uh, Droam, the, other nations essentially refused to acknowledge it. They basically said, you're a bunch of monsters, you're savages, and we're sure that within 10 years you're going to collapse right. and don't waste our time. Uh, so, and needless to say, with the demon wastes, there's no, again, there's no nation there. It's not like there's any right, coherent there's- force that would come and try and represent them uh, at the treaty. Right, unless suddenly the Lords of Dust just want to start playing nice, which right. isn't going to happen. So, so the basic point is just calling out the differences. No yeah. one came from the Demon Wastes. Uh, the Shadow Marches, likewise, they didn't, you know, there were no, it's not that they were turned down. It's no one actually petitioned to be recognized as a nation. Mm-hmm. And then Droam is the one that stands out as they did actually, uh, you know, position themselves to be recognized and were denied. Right. Right. So the interesting implication of all this is that if you have a character, whether an NPC or a PC who is of those nations, um, unless they are a member of a working member of house, the yes. um, they, they are not protected by these laws. Right. However, they are accountable for adhering to them. Yep. And, is, and so that's that's the wacky twist. And yeah. again, it's more of an issue for Droam than it is for Dargoon because uh, – not for Dargoon, for the Shadow Marches. Because frankly, if you're a human from the Shadow Marches, most people aren't even going to know it. Right. You know, unless they're, you're super yeah. obvious about it. It's not like most people stop and say, hey, that guy's wearing a marcher hat. I'll bet I could kill him and get away with that. Right. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a knoll – Technically, you are not protected by the law. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone beats you up, there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, on the one hand, this is a bonus to DMs that makes it a little easier to use uh, Dask as bad guys because actually you don't get in trouble for killing a bunch of kobolds. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, it also is, as you suggested, it's an interesting decision if you have a draw my character how far uh as a game master or as a player you want to call that out um and especially when you have like orcs and such as playable races right now the flip side of that of course is the fact that because you know nations that have where their citizens have the protection of the code of Galifar are expected to abide by the code of Galifar right. uh and Droam is not so this also is that point where it's one of the things that makes Droam a interesting location for adventure is this is the place where the laws of uh, the throne hole nations do not reach where, you know, it's not that nothing is forbidden because frankly, uh, the local governors will establish their own standards of, uh, what they will or will not punish. Right. Uh, but it is still a place where when I run things in Joe M, I definitely highlight the fact that, uh, a lot of things you take for granted in the five nations. That's not how things work here. You know, thinking about what you're saying here too is, you know, the Treaty of Thronehold is only two years old. Mm-hmm. We haven't dealt with cases, or for all we know, um, Corvair has not dealt with cases necessarily about natural-born monstrous humanoids yep. who are born in, say, Brayland. What, well, well, how would you solve that in your Eberron? If well, there's a couple different that? issues. Uh, you know, first of all, I'll, I'll dial it back for a moment and say also that I think a canny lawyer – would potentially make an argument that uh, the Shadow Marches are part of Brayland, mm-hmm. uh, and and that your your marcher character who's gotten trouble, uh, you know, well they should just be considered a Braylish citizen because uh, the Shadow Marches aren't a nation and were considered part of Brayland in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, basically, again, we're talking about a thing that's two years old. I'm saying. I think that's a case that either is happening or will happen right. at some point uh, in the courts. As for that, uh, you know, this Noel was just born here. It's an interesting issue. And uh, I suspect that there probably either is or will be, uh, you know, some form of, uh, so to speak, you know, citizenship uh process that you would have to go through, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, essentially swearing an oath of fealty to the Brelish, you know, crown. Right. Uh, Proof of residency. (laughs) Right. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I'm sure part of it would definitely be, oh, you're swearing an oath to Braylon to uphold the code of Galifar, et cetera. And that's where ID papers come in. Yeah. Uh, And I think it would probably be something like that. It would be a formal process in a court uh, where you would, you would swear oaths right. and you would get the ID, you know, identification papers that indicate that. And of course, then if you break the laws, you're really in trouble because you've sworn to uphold them. Oops, uh, to uphold them, yeah. Indeed. So, um, so I think it's not for something like a knoll. I don't think it would be as simple as just, well, I was born here. So, mm-hmm. so I'm in. 
uh, because you'd have to in some way be able to prove that. Right. But I think a null could certainly go through, uh, you know, there is a process for a null to become a British citizen. Sure. Right. You know which race doesn't have to worry about that? No. Warforged. That's true. Yes. Warforged. <laughs> they get it for free. That's right. So let's talk about that some. So this was not something that the, uh, the various nations were necessarily pushing for prior <laughs> to signing the treaty. It was Borno who brought it to the table and he was advocating on behalf of bulwark who was a warforged that uh served He's totally Brayland. not the lord of blades probably to- maybe maybe totally not depends on how it goes in your eberron <laughs> yes indeed so uh yeah and, and and his story so so for those who don't know the story behind that is that as soon as the treaty was signed and warforged were regarded as a people bulwark just left and disappeared right and so nobody knows what came, what, what became of him. Some suspect that he might have become the Lord of Blades. Others think he just went He's on to out live his. There doing something. Right, right. Art for fun. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. He's the Warforged Banksy. He started. He started an Etsy shop and he's selling jewelry. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But but it is an interesting point of that. What the um, the treaty did was it considered uh you know it, it identified that warforged were considered to be people instead of property uh it forbade the creation of new warforged so uh house kenneth was uh forced to shut down the creation forges and of course they abided of course they oh, right. absolutely yeah sure sure um anyhow but at the same time part of the point is that still leaves the question of uh you know, essentially the idea is that they're supposed to be considered, uh, citizens of the nations that they served. Mm-hmm. And not all nations have sort of followed that entirely equally. Uh, so, you know, we do talk about indentured servitude in Karnath. And, you know, again, part of the idea is that to a large degree, a lot of Warforged don't really know. You know, it's, it's who's, uh, they were created. They, they fought in the war. They had a thing to do. And now someone's giving them a different thing to do, but it's a job now and you're going to get paid. See, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you know, we have to, we have to take this housing share out right. of your thing, even though you don't eat or sleep. Right. Uh, and so part of the idea, and this is where, you know, the Lord of Blades, among others, you know, has rightful reason to, uh, be angry is the idea that a lot of Warforged are being essentially, you know, tricked and don't really know, uh, what their freedom is. I find it interesting that, that the source books cite Thrain and Karnath mm-hmm. as the, as two of the prime examples of nations that are, sort of employing or allowing indentured servitude. I'm ambivalent about Thrain. You know, I have a, issues with a lot of ways things are treated about with Thrain. However, the way I look at Thrain is that the Church of the Silver Flame is fundamentally about protect the innocent from supernatural evil. Right. Uh, and it is, it is, you know, act with compassion, but protect the innocent from harm. Uh, I definitely see the Thrain outlook as these are things that were created. Mm. They aren't 
living creatures. They don't, they don't have add, souls. They don't have souls. They right. don't add to the flame. Cause how could they have souls? You made it in a, in a machine. Right. Uh, and so basically that you can say by law they're people, but they're not, you know, it's not our job to protect them. And furthermore, beyond that, they were made as weapons of war. Right. It is their job. They were made to protect the living. And that's their job. So essentially the Thrain attitude, I don't want to say it's, uh, it's that they're cruel. I want to say it's that they just don't even understand why are you trying to say our toaster is a person? We made it to do a job and we have to protect the actual people out here. And, you know, next you're going to start trying to get me to, you know, to treat my armor as a citizen. Right. And the point is, you and I can look at it and say, but Warforged do have souls, but Warforged are living beings. Right. But why not treat and them yet, as, you know, what's the, the harm? At the same time, yeah. it's not completely uh, impo- implausible to understand the, the Thrain point of view, especially when the point of the Thrains is we got people we need to take care of. And in fact, we made these people, these things to take care of them. Right. You know? Right. Uh, whereas Karnath, to me, the whole point is Karnath has always been just a harsher place and that, uh, they definitely are, are, you know, we made these things to fight. Uh, and remember Karnath also uses skeletons, you know, and I'm just saying they yeah. don't, they don't give the skeletons houses and the right to vote and things like that. And so I think they're just much more pragmatic and these things are weapons and, you know, uh, you're, you're being soft if, uh, if you're going to try and give your, your sword, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, a nice house. And I think that's the, that's the part that I, I mean, I don't want to say struggle with reconciling. It's not really a struggle. It's just sort of a question, I guess, but they have undead that can do a lot of those things. So part of it is that in my opinion, Karnath doesn't, Karnath has the least number of Warforged. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also my point is Karnath, if it took in Siren Warforged after the war, that's where they just be like, great, you know, your things. Uh, But yeah, they don't have as many Warforged because they had undead. They didn't need Warforged. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, they certainly had some because there are things each of those two types of unit is better at. Um, and again, they certainly have the ones that they, so to speak, inherited for uh, as Syrian refugees. Right. Fair and enough. frankly, when you get to that Syrian refugee category, then also they're enemy combatants, which frankly, Karnath has never had a ton of sympathy for enemy combatants. That is true. That is a very fair point. Uh, you know, it is also worth noting that Karnath is one of the critical nations that actually does have a different uh, and harsher set of laws. Right. Uh, that the Code of Caius overrides uh, the Code of Galifar and is significantly harsher. That's right. That's right. And they were – correct me if I'm wrong. They were the first to sign the treaty, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. Well, that is the point is that Caius has always supported the idea – that the war was a bad idea, uh, and that, uh, the morning is a terrible threat to everybody. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, you know, the, the whole idea with Caius is, is he recognizes that 
war brings a tremendous loss of life and, uh, you know, is unlikely to accomplish, uh, the goals that he would want. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, oh, he's a happy person who loves everybody and wants everyone to be happy. Right. It's just, he's like, this isn't the way to get what I want. Right. Right. Um, and this is the long, you know, long standing clash between Caius and Arala, uh, where Caius is the guy who ultimately probably what he wants is not great for you, but he's not going to at least cause a war to get it. Right. Uh, whereas Arala still really believes in that vision of United Galifar and believes that we can have a beautiful, just war where no one, no innocence will suffer and it'll be fought right and we'll get this broken, uh, kingdom back together, uh, which is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> but she means well. Because now there's saying. 12 nations to combat yes. with. Yes. Right. Oh, and that's so frustrating. But, right. you know, she's working on a big mending spell and it's called war. Yeah. Good luck with that. All right. <laughs> let, let us know how that works out. Anyhow. Anyhow. Uh, so, yeah, the point is this was all a wild diversion that started because we were calling out the fact that Warforged uh, were – uh, under the terms of the treaty, identified as citizens and theoretically protected by the Code of Galifar. Theoretically, right. right. But again, part of this point is that the Code of Galifar, which is a general set of basic laws, much as uh, those many of us are used to, that, you know, you don't murder people, you don't rob from people. Uh, if you're curious about it, Sharn City of Towers, the Sharn source book, uh, is the one that actually goes into the most detail about things that are covered in, uh, under the, the code of Galifar. Right. Um, but at the same time, we know there's nations that are not following these to the letter. Uh, a critical example is that it has been called out both in some of the source books and in novels, uh, that Dargoon is still holds slaves. Uh, largely Syrians taken as slaves when Dargoon was established. Mm -hmm. Also, frankly, they enslave other, you know, other goblins. Uh, and slavery is outlawed under the Code of Galifar. Mm -hmm. Uh, likewise, Valinar has been particularly called out as continuing to engage in aggressive acts. All along its borders, to, you know, against the Talenta Plains, against uh, Kabara, uh, against Dargoon, and even occasionally as far as Karnath. In both of those cases, the issue is they're sort of relatively small scale things that the overall, the larger nations are ignoring. Uh, in the case of Valinar, it's not that Sheris has declared war on anybody or mobilized a massive army. It is war bands, you know, these small units charging in, wrecking a, wrecking a bunch of stuff and taking off. Uh, and in that case, Sheris is certainly saying, oh, oh, yo, those, those naughty, naughty boys, we'll deal with them. I'll, I'll discipline them. Right. Uh, likewise in Dargoon, Haruk's, again, yeah. we're talking about it's only been two years. You know, you can be sure that Haruk is saying, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to solve this problem. We're going to make this change. But as called out in Basingthwaite's novels, 
the whole idea is he's in a delicate position. Yeah. This is a, a practice that some of his warlords, uh, just consider their right. Uh, and he has to figure out how does he sort of convert them. Right. Right. to the laws without having the whole nation collapse. And I think we talked about some of those challenges in our Goblinoids episode. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah. And and to me, that's the point of this is something that should be interesting. Right. This is not, uh, oh, the whole nation should collapse because they aren't following the laws. Because, you know, it's the, among other things, this has only been two years. Give it 10 years. And this is where you could get one of the other nations or uh, multiple other nations saying, look, you got to do something about this or imposing sanctions or doing things. You know, Haruk recognizes this is a problem. Right. It's a risk for him. Uh, but this is where 998 is this crucible moment when we are still trying to figure out uh, how do we deal with things like that with the Valinar? Are they going to settle down or is this going to get worse? And if it gets worse – how far does it go before somebody, uh, you know, decides it's gone too far? So, so this kind of this question segues sort of into the, the bit about um, how House Donate's Sentinel Marshals—they mm-hmm. still act as the enforcers for the mm-hmm. Code of Galifar. Yes. What's to prevent them from going after those individuals who are doing the raiding and the slaving and so on? Oh, absolutely nothing. Law? So that so in your Eberron. Do you see that as conflict that occurs? The basic issue is the Sentinel Marshals have the authority to enforce the Code of Galifar across borders, but they don't do it unless they're paid. Oh. You know, they aren't just out there just trying to, uh, you know, so to speak, they're not cops. They're essentially a sort of, you know, form of, of bounty hunter, if you will. I see. Right. Uh, it's that basically if someone in on dare puts out, I have a just crime against this guy and I'm going to pay you a hundred gold to enforce it. They have the right to go into Thrain and say, we're acting, we're pursuing this guy, uh, who is a criminal under the code of Galifar and we're going to take him back, uh, to on dare. So in theory, Mm-hmm. You know, Brayland or let's say House Orion or somebody could hire the Sentinel Marshals to go after sure. that individual who maybe enslaved their traveling whatever. You bet. Or likewise, uh, if uh, a Valinor warband, you know, comes in and trashes uh, a, you know, Fort Bones or something like that, uh, a – Carnathy Noble could absolutely hire uh, Sentinel Marshals to say, track that guy down. And uh, Sheriff would be sad because he'd rather you, they raised a big army and attacked Valinor en masse, but also (laughs) they would have to acknowledge he'd be like, yep. Okay. Go ahead. Right. You know, he'd want that glorious battle, but uh, yeah, I I agreed Uh, to uphold this law. So, and this is a critical point of usually the Sentinel Marshals are sort of seen as, as exceptionally elite. Uh, but it's entirely possible as a group patron, uh, to say that you are a team of Sentinel Marshals and that the thrust of a campaign is you being on missions like that. Go, you know, go into, uh, hey, Brayland has an Ondarian, uh, wizard working for them who Ondare has, uh, called out as a war criminal. 
go get that guy. You know, go into Dargoon and rescue slaves. You know, any of those things are certainly would be an interesting role for a group of players. It's just that by default, like I said, they, they have the authority to enforce law across international borders, but you got to pay them before they'll do it. Before they'll do it. Right. Right. So I think that's, that's a really good sort of segue then into talking about how GMs and players can look at and employ the Treaty of Thronehold in their games. Because, you know, we're already talking about like, you know, whether there's sort of a, a, um, a group patron type of thing going on with the, you know, the Sentinel Marshals or whatever it might be. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly some plot devices I think that can come into play. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Sentinel Marshals are absolutely, you know, a point that can go either direction. It's a perfectly uh, compelling uh, sort of group patron concept, you know, for a group of players. Uh, at the same time, it is also definitely if players get in trouble, uh, you know, the uh, the marshals are the people who could pursue them wherever they go. Right. Uh, I will also say the side note to this is this is what makes Droam exciting is that Droam again is a place where the code of Galifar is not recognized. So in theory, the Sentinel Marshal shows up at the Brelish court and says, you know, I have a writ against, uh, Sir such and such and I'm taking him back to Andare. If it's all legit under the code of Galifar, they've got that right. If they come into, uh, Greywall, and say that uh, the flare guard's going to just laugh at them and, you know, eat their leg or, you know, <laughs> at least charge them a lot of money. Right. And so this is the idea that because of that, Droam is uh, a haven for war criminals, deserters, and frankly, just political dissidents uh, who would be threatened you know, if they remained in a thronehold nation. Right. right. And so essentially you want to both remember that if you're in a thronehold nation, theoretically the code of Galifar applies. There's things you shouldn't be able to get away with, or at least that you'll be in trouble if you do. But on the other hand, that also means there's places in the world like the shadow marches or Joam where people will go because they want to be away from that. And that can create all sorts of different opportunities. Right. Right. Unless you're an employee of house, the That is true. Right. And this again is part of calling out the, uh, the value of dragon marked houses and the power of dragon marked mm. houses. Indeed. So, uh, yeah. So, um, so, so we just talked about how Sentinel marshals, like they, they won't engage unless being paid. And, and even then, it might be questionable as to where they have to go to retrieve the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so other than that, how else do you see the Treaty of Thronehold being enforced? Is it just simply a Cold War thing where the nations are just trying to play nice to prevent war from breaking out again? Well, or- there's a couple of different things. And one thing I do want to call out just for a moment is the difference between a Sentinel Marshal and a Thrashka Bounty Hunter. Right. And the basic point is the Sentinel Marshal can show up and actually identify themselves and say, I'm here with a legal claim on Bob Mm -hmm. because Bob is a criminal. The Thrashk Bounty Hunter will just show up, hit Bob over the head, stuff him in a sack and carry him off. Right. 
And the point is, A, he doesn't care if Bob's a criminal or not. And B, he's not flashing a badge because he has no actual legal authority. Right. It's just the he gets away with what he can get away with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's just a slight thing I'll, I'll just note that as a Thrash bounty hunter, you don't actually have le- legal authority or just assumed that you can operate without it. Right. You're, you're the um, Mandalorian. But- Right, exactly. But on the other hand, if you do get caught by the Charm Watch for beating up, you know, your quarry, okay, you've got to deal with that. Um, But coming back to the question of of sort of how and where it applies, you know, the couple things to me, one of the big ones is just, in a sense, calling out the fact that it's only two years old, Mm -hmm. that we are still figuring out how to enforce, you know, who does enforce these things. And, uh, what are the limits and, uh, the, you know, even though technically the Eldine reaches are a thronehold nation, there's a lot of people in Andare who think that's ridiculous. And, you know, so what do you do? What happens when the Andarian, uh, you know, basically, uh, gets in a fight with the reacher about it? Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of one thing you can definitely explore is those tensions, the Siren, uh, with a vendetta against the, the Dargoon, you know, the Dargul, uh, because you, you know, you people stole their land to which the Dargul would say, no, you people stole their land. And, you know, they'd have a whole, whole thing about it. Yeah. Um, and and so part of it is definitely exploring the idea of those nations that are official but still struggling with that. Again, Dargoon and slavery. You know, Dargoon is a perfect example of uh, it's a nation where Haruk wants to be part of the international community, and yet the Code of Galifar is not. The does not fit with the traditions of the Galdar. Right. And, and that that is a very unstable, uh, dangerous situation because they're trying to make it work, but there's a lot of forces within the nation that do not, do not respect it. Um, so that could be an interesting thing to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How about you? Any, any thoughts? Yeah. I, I sort of see it as, um, Kind of like a newly born United Nations type of approach mm-hmm. where people are still Very trying much. to, or, or like an EU kind of thing mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they're, they're feeling it out as they go along. And, and again, it's only been two years as we keep saying, but that means there hasn't been a lot of time for major incidents to come into play for things to be, you know, questioned and, or challenged. Uh, and, and I, I agree. I agree. I think that, that you really hitting on a, a critical point there that it is the, there's a lot of room to have. This is the first time this kind of legal challenge or issue has ever come up. Yeah. And, and we're still figuring it out. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, I think that's a really good opportunity for, you know, maybe a plot hook even, um, that the party could, you know, the GM could have the party get involved with, um, in terms of maybe they're the ones that are caught in the middle of this sort of, uh, challenge regarding a certain legality of, of something they've done. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a lot of things to explore there, 
you know, well, and this, you know, this ties to Thronehold itself, mm-hmm. which really often doesn't get a lot of attention. No, it doesn't. Uh, but Thronehold is this location that technically is where these sort of, you know, where, where issues and grievances are resolved. Uh, and it is this city divided up between the five nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's basically, you know, if you really want to get your sort of classic, Cold War, you know, Berlin and just split it up a couple more ways. Um, you know, there's a lot of room for intrigue and espionage yeah. in, uh, in Thronehold. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I don't have, I don't have anything specific or concrete, but it's more of a, this could be an exciting thing uh, to be explored. Um, yeah. And, and when you look to the, th- the treaty, it's also important just to understand that what we're talking about with the treaty is also further the peace. And this comes back to any sort of Cold War plot uh, of the idea that the nations have stopped fighting, but to a large degree, many of them still aren't happy with the situation. Right. Uh, some of them are actively preparing for war, you know, with the basic idea that if we can confirm that the morning is either – never going to happen again or we can understand it and solve it uh then then they're ready to fight again and so you can play to a lot of that oh on dare is developing some arcane super weapon or karnath is secretly building up forces along the thrain border you know i mean you can have a lot of of that sort of tension of the players either discovering these things or stumbling into them you know, what happens when your players, you know, essentially uh, top secret hidden on Darien arcane weapons research program. That's a dungeon if you happen to accidentally stumble into it. Right. You yeah. know? Yeah. 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 It's what I remember, you know, a really good example is um, I remember in the eight. I, I was a big fan of the 1980s um, uh, Justice League comics. You know, uh, just before it became Justice League International, they had an incident where there were there were nuclear uh silos um being attacked Uh and so they were going to try to stop this from happening uh and as they were going into russia uh the rocket reds um stopped them right ah the rocket reds the rocket reds yeah and uh but it was a major incident because they were they they had to like stop because they're thinking this could be seen as an american attack right and this is before they had you know international recognition and whatnot and I always found that really compelling because I was like, oh, my God, like, what do you do as a group of superheroes or adventurers or whatever it might be in this Cold War state where you're just going in without any authority yep. on a sovereign nation? You know. And, but and- on the other hand, flip it around to Mission Impossible. And mm-hmm. that's the point, the beauty of a group of adventurers is yeah. you're not part of a sovereign nation. And so you're <laughs> the perfect tools well, if well, Brayland yeah. – you know, Braylon knows about this, uh, this, this arcane workshop. If they sent even dark lanterns, if they were caught, oh, it'd be disastrous. But you, stupid party of adventurers, you are an entirely disposable, you know, tool with no political ties. Yeah. Well, that, well, that was still the threat, actually, because technically the Justice League at that time, using this example again, they, they didn't have uh, strict ties to the United States. They, they weren't necessarily oh, yeah. representing him. It was the perception that was the risk. Yeah. And I could still but see I that coming into play, but yeah. I will just say, bwa ha ha. Yeah. 
but there you are. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely the question of, yeah. on the one hand, you can have, again, going back to group patrons, you could work for a head of state. You right. could be an espionage unit. Or as you said, if you're not, you still have the question, well, if you're all brailish, that still would be a perception. Right. You know, that, uh, that you might be. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's sort of the even more critical, which I think is exactly what you were getting for is if you're a group of Braylish adventurers, then even if you aren't doing anything, if you go and trash, uh, you know, an Ondarian place that could, you know, cause an international incident. Right. Right. And if you're an orc, well, <laughs> it's just even worse. <laughs> right. Right. If you don't, uh, if, if you're not tied to Tarashk. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, yeah, I, I mean, that's just one of the many, uh, but again, part of the point is it does all come back to that idea that as a game master, it's up to you to decide how heavy yeah. you want this to be right. in your game. Right. How much so, weight does it actually carry in your, in your Eberron is, yeah. is, 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 a, is a question that you, that any GM should ask themselves. Um, yeah. Now, it could be a major source of, of plot hooks or it could just be something that's in the background. You don't want to be bothered with it. And that's fine. Perfectly fine. And – and this is the same thing that comes up sometimes people ask about the Korth edicts, the limitations placed on Dragonmarked houses. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people will say, well, aren't the Valinor, I mean, excuse me, isn't House uh, Lirindar, you know, sort of va- uh, violating the Korth edicts in Valinor? Uh, you know, isn't X a violation of the Korth edicts? And the point is, yeah. Yeah. Right. But who's gonna do anything? Who's about it? who's there to stop it? There's and, no singular that, nation to to enforce that. Right. Right. And that when it was Galifar, it was Galifar. Mm-hmm. But now someone's got to call it out, and then someone's got to decide. Okay, we're gonna actually do something about it, and it's only been two years. So we're back to the that's exactly the kind of thing that someone can bring that to the council in Thronehold, and say something needs to be done about this. But again. Is anyone going to yeah. bite that bullet and do it? Who's going to do something about it? How are they going to do something about it? And yep. what's going to be done about it? And right. and so part of it really is that point to bear in mind that everyone is still figuring this whole peace thing out. Mm-hmm. And that in a lot of cases, the, the Korth Edicts being a, a great example of, yeah – there's a couple of these that you can definitely call out and say that is that is a violation, that is a problem, but as of yet, no one's figured out what to do about it. Right, and that can be a story. Right, indeed, indeed. Now, so, yeah, go ahead. Go on. Oh, I was going to bring up because uh, we talked a little bit about like you know if you're an org PC and things like that, and I think an interesting plot hook too could be you know we we talked about Warforged, uh, uh, some of them being in indentured servitude. Um, but we haven't talked about the implications of a warforged breaking that indentured servitude. Well, to me, that comes entirely, uh, that's the same idea as the debts table mm-hmm. in rising from the last war. Ah, yeah. That that's a perfect thing of saying, you know, that, that table, the, the headline is, you know, why do you need 200 gold pieces? Mm-hmm. And easy. You need to pay off your indentured servitude contract. Right, right. Uh, and technically at any time, someone could send a sentinel marshal to pick you up, you know. Uh, so I do think, you know, on the, the larger term, you generally would say, Hey, you're one more forge in the world. Uh, 
how big was the contract and and is anyone going to go to the trouble of trying to enforce it? Mm-hmm. But it's still definitely an interesting uh, character point. Yeah. You know, and I think um, even if these aren't major plot hooks, they could yeah. be just little seeds that you drop in if you're short for an idea for night. Well, it's it's definitely when you look to Warforged in general, uh, you know, it's it's always important to say what nation, you know, which nation built you? Uh, what did you do in the war? What did you do after the war? Mm-hmm. You know, have you seamlessly transitioned? Do you uh, embrace the idea of freedom and personal destiny or are you still figuring it out um and especially again if you were a carnathi warforged did you uh sort of work things out and leave on your own terms or did you flee and uh you know these are all interesting things yeah yeah to play with yeah and and, you know or even not necessarily what nation you're even built in but who was the last Mm -hmm. one you served and an interesting thing, again, to think about based on your nation is how do you feel uh, about the treaty? Right. You know, if you're an Ondarian, do you have family in Thaliost? Uh, do you consider the Eldine Reaches? You know, did you lose land because yeah. you're, you know, if you're a noble, maybe you're a noble and much of your estates were in the Eldine Reaches. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. uh and so it can be very interesting. You know, on the one hand, it's easy to say everybody's happy. Everything's great. On the other hand, it can be very interesting to take a character and pick a, uh, um, you know, decide that you have a very specific issue with one of the mm-hmm. nations or one of the consequences right. of the, the treaty that you have. Again, your family uh, estates are in Dargoon. Right, right. You know, and that's a great one to be an outlander or an urchin or whatever and say, oh, but technically there's a manor in uh, in Dargoon with your family name on it. Right. <laughs> you know, but what you going to do about that? Yeah. Or even in, in Seer, you know, there could be sure. something in Metrol that. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the Mornland, it's it's that's a whole nother story. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't just take it back in Dargoon. You know, you do have the weird. There's probably a tribe of bugbears living yep. yeah, squatting in on your it estate. Are you going to do anything? Legal right you know, to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, and, the, uh, and, and, you know, I think that that really speaks to that whole aspect of the treaty being a treaty, not, not a sense of resolution. You know, yeah. and, you know, that, that city that's being held by that other country, you know, mm-hmm. your home is in there and right. your belongings are in there, but you can't claim it. Yep. You know, and, uh, and yeah, what are you going to do about it? It's not like you can personally go in there and liberate the city on your own. Right. Yeah. Um, so to me, part of the point is we talk about regrets. You know, what are the things you mm-hmm. regret? Mm-hmm. But also there's, uh, it's, it's very logical to, in creating a character, say, well, what are your grievances? Yeah. What are the what things are you, you resent? About? Yeah. You know? Uh, and again, these are the kind of things that may never actually become relevant in an actual adventure you play. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a family manor in Dargoon. Uh, well, it turns out all our stories are up in the demon wastes and on dare. And so I'm never going to do anything about that, but I can still be really pissed off about it. Sure. Yeah. And say, well, dang it, you know, I should be resting in my grand, you know, I mean, it gives me something to talk about, if nothing else. Yeah. I was a lord, 
you know? Yeah. And you know, there's, there's like in Savage Worlds, you have interludes, right? And that's a yep. great way to weave that kind of a story, you know, into the narration where, where you're sitting around, you're talking about that manner that you lost and, and, yep. but there's nothing you can do about it, you know? And it's, it shapes your character, you know, it shapes how their outlook and, and how they see things, you know? Yeah, it's great, great role play opportunity. Well, and conversely, again, the other alternative is to say, what did you gain from it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so on the other hand, if you are a Dargle, uh, or you are, uh, you know, a Thrain, well, you believe that, that, uh, your nation deserves Stavios. Right. You know, right. and things like that. You right. Know, what are the, the wins? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, rights. For example, you know, yep. you, you, you're, well, are, yeah, we're for it. You're a person, <laughs> you yep. know, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things, um, that you can look to with that. And, and uh, I mean, I'll, I'll call out, you know, as a, uh, novel that is a perfectly fine basis for a story, you know, the, the Queen of Stone, mm -hmm. uh, one of my novels is all about a summit and Droam, uh, where Droam has appealed uh, a second time to be recognized as a throne whole nation. And, uh, and, and basically you have, uh, emissaries from all the throne whole nations, you know, traveling to the great crag, uh, to attend the summit. So that's the kind of thing you could explore as well. And, and they succeed, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not saying nothing. <laughs> no spoilers. No spoilers. Well, um, um yeah, I, Obviously, with everything we've, we've talked about, there's, there's a lot of great stuff that you could employ with the Treaty of Thronehold in terms of, you know, whether it's inspiration or actual plot hooks and whatnot. Um, or as we said earlier, you can just leave it untouched and not worry yeah, about true. it. Yeah, it's true. You don't have to worry yeah. about it, but. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's definitely a backdrop kind of a thing, not, uh, not something that has to slap you in the face every time you play or run, uh, an Ebron game. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, I think it's intriguing enough, you know, to, to consider it. So for sure. Great. Well, I All don't right. know if I have anything else really. To, no, to I'm good. On. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, uh, thank you all for listening and be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages and whatever option you prefer. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we've been getting a lot of feedback. I've seen some great comments on there. Um, I'm actually wondering if we should do a little bit of a reading of some of the, of some of the, uh, the, the reviews that we get because they've been really uh, one entertaining. <laughs> and, I was about to say just to gloat, just, just to, to gloat, be like yeah, just to feel yeah, good. I see what people you know? are saying, yeah. Um, but for those of you who have left reviews, we thank you. Um, very kind, and we we greatly appreciate them. So uh, join us next time as we explore the culture of the half elven Corvar of Corvair. I don't think we've talked about half elves yet, so uh, I think this will be a great topic, and I think it's. I personally am fascinated by half elves. So looking forward to that. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, again, thank you, Keith so much for your, your input and until next time, keep exploring.